Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. The Sunday before we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this morning we're going to be turning our attention to Matthew chapter 21. And so if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, that's great. We're going to spend all of our time there. And if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, um, the guys are up in the aisles and they'll be glad to give you one. Just raise your hand and they'll put it in your hand. All right. But before we um, turn our attention to the Scriptures, I want to uh, kind of lay out what an old pastor of mine, not, he's not old, but a pastor of mine that I used to have many years ago. Well, it sounds old, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, he is old. Okay, this guy named Steve Brown, who was my pastor, and he's an old guy, and he does radio now, and I hear him sometimes on the radio when I was in college. Uh, he used to teach, and when he taught, he said, before we jumped into the text, he said, I want, I want, to, take some, I want to look at some side notes. And he would add side notes, and he would add super side notes, and I often noticed that Steve, most of his sermon was side notes and super side notes. And um, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at side notes before we look at the text itself. But before I do that, let's pray together. Father, this morning I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that in it that we find truth, and in it your spirit speaks to us and teaches us and touches our hearts and moves us to a place where we understand about our sin and our need for a Savior, to a place where we understand how it is that we ought to live in obedience to you, to a place that, um, that causes our hearts to have joy in the understanding that we serve a great God who loves us so much and desires to do great things in our life. And so this morning, as we look at your word, I pray that you would draw close to us, that you would comfort us, that you would encourage us. For some of us, you would, that you would challenge us but in the midst of it, that you would have your way in our lives because we took the time this morning to hear from you and to read the words of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. So let's look at a couple side notes or talk about a couple side notes before we jump into the text, all right? And once again, it's Matthew 21, and it's Jesus, what they call the triumphal entry, where he's coming into the city of Jerusalem, um, and he's coming in. Um, and it's really important for us to understand that, when, this is one of the side notes, is that this is the last week of Jesus' life. The text that we're looking at is basically, you know, it's just a few days, it's five days until his crucifixion, and then just a week until his resurrection. And, and so we're, we're seeing this, and we're, we're it's, there's the gospel writer, Matthew, is laying it out for us so that we understand the importance of what's going on. Now, it's interesting to me that, um, that this um, triumphal entry is listed in Matthew 21, and there are 28, 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. That means that there are seven chapters, listen, seven chapters that Matthew dedicates to the last Six or seven days of Jesus' life. Well, actually, the last five days of Jesus' life until his resurrection. And then if you look at the book of John, there are 20 chapters in the book of John, but the triumphal entry is listed in the 12th chapter. Therefore, it gives us eight chapters in which um, we are focusing on these last few days of Jesus' life. And then in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Mark, 
There are 16 chapters in the book of Mark, and it's in chapter 11. Therefore, there are five chapters that are dedicated to these last days of Jesus' life. And what we need to understand by this is that a large portion of the Gospels are dedicated to these last few days of Jesus' life. And this is the entry. This is when he comes in. This is his day in a lot of ways. And it's a day in which he's going to come to us and challenge us as we look at his word. And so it's important for us to know that, that this is the last five days before the cross. The second side note I want us to see is that, or I want us to understand, is the Jewish culture of the time. Now, I'm going to recommend a book to you. If you haven't read it already, I would really encourage you to do so. It's called Killing Jesus by Bill O'Reilly. Now, I don't know if Bill O'Reilly is a believer. I think he's a Catholic. But one of the things I love about the book is it lays out the history of the time of the life of Jesus. Now, I want you to know that I have spent a lot of time, many years in my life, and spent some time in education, in formal education, learning about the scriptures and learning about the history of the Jewish time. And I got to tell you, that book really lays it out so clearly so that you understand and get the concept of what's going on. And what we need to understand about the Jewish culture at that time is that the Jews were under Roman rule. Now, we, un we know that, and we read that, and we understand that. They were under the rule of Caesar. Okay, and the rule in Jerusalem at that time in Judea and Palestine was kind of two two tier. All right, there was a there was a tier that um, the Roman Empire had set up over them, which were kind of Roman rulers, and that's where you get Pilate, and that's where you get Herod, and all these guys that you read about in the Bible. You trying to, have you ever done that? Tried to read the Bible and say so. Who's this Herod guy, and how does Pilate fit in? I mean, and, and so what they are is they are Roman rulers that are overseeing this part of the country. And then in the second tier of that are the Jewish leaders. And the Jewish leaders are the Sanhedrin, um, and they're made up of, of basically these guys that are called the Sadducees, and they're lawyers. And they're the governing, they kind of rule over and make the rules for the community, um, the legal rules, and they're in cahoots big time with the Roman Roman leaders. They're kind of working hand in hand because the Sanhedrin wants everything to be smooth and, and work out really good with the Romans. Then you've got the Pharisees, and, and they are the bad guys in a lot of the confrontation that Jesus has with uh, the leaders. The Pharisees are the guys that he confronts. But, but truthfully, the, well, truthfully, they, they, were, they had some serious issues, and Jesus tells us about them. But the deal is, is that as far as the people went, they were the religious zealots. They were the men who knew the scriptures, they were the ones that knew the laws, and they were the ones that were kind of set the boundaries for the people of Israel so that in the midst of this Roman rule and in the midst of this cultural melting pot where all these other Roman cultures had moved into the, the territory of Israel and Palestine, these Pharisees kind of set the boundaries for the Jewish people to understand who they are and set themselves apart as a people unto God. And, and that's how it was breaking down. So you had two tiers. You had a Jew, the Roman oversight, and then you had Jewish leaders. And that is the environment in which Jesus functioned in and taught in and ultimately comes into Jerusalem in. And then thirdly, um, there's the idea as we look at Jesus' triumphal entry, entry that we, the idea of understanding the Jewish messianic idea. Basically, it's this. Is that the Jews, the, the, the Jews had this belief that there was going to be a Messiah who came. And the Messiah, the term Messiah means anointed one. He would be the king. 
He would be the king. He would be the one that comes in to rule. He would be the ultimate king. He would come from the line of David, and he would be the ultimate king, the supreme ruler, who would not only, listen, not only rule over Israel and rule the people justly and point them to God, but ultimately he would rule over all of the world. Their idea of Messiah is that there was a king coming who would set up his rule in Israel, in Jerusalem, and that king would be so powerful and so great and so majestic and so blessed by God that he would rule the entire earth and that all the other nations would bow to this king. And that's what the Jews believed. And they were so hungry for this Messiah to come. You know why? Because they had been pressed down and oppressed by the Jewish leaders who were under the Roman leaders, who were these guys that were tyrants. I mean, in fact, Caesar actually had to remove one of the Herods because he was so brutal and so cruel to the people. I mean, he would, they would just kill Jews for, no, you know, for just no apparent reason. Just, they'd get up and they'd just treat them poorly, and these people were so oppressed, and they were longing so much for their Messiah to come because they wanted freedom from the Romans, they wanted peace to be back in Israel, and they wanted everything that God had promised them through their prophets to take place. And then Jesus enters the scene. And for the previous three years of his life, he's been outside the city of Jerusalem for the most part, except on some of the, the special days when he comes in to celebrate. He was outside in the countryside where he did all of his miracles and he did all of his teaching and all of his preaching. And if you remember, if you think back on your readings of the, the Gospels, you'll remember that when Jesus did things, like he would cast out demons and, and people would proclaim him to be the son of David or the son of God, he would go, no, 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 be quiet. Remember, he would say he would heal people, and they would go, wow. He goes, now go, but don't tell, anybody, don't tell anybody who I am. Don't tell anybody what's happened. And so he's kind of kept that down under wraps. But the Friday before the triumphal entry, he finds himself in, 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 a, town called, in a town called Bethpage, which is very, very near um, the town in which he raised Lazarus from the dead. So two days before the triumphal entry, there are two men, we see this in chapter 20, there are two men who are blind and they call out to Jesus and they say, oh son of David, son of David, come to us. And they, they started crying out to him. And Jesus, now let's back up, the term son of David is a messianic term. They're basically saying, oh king, oh messiah that is to come. They're screaming out to Jesus. And he goes, what is it that you want from me? For the first time, he doesn't tell them to be quiet. He doesn't tell them to stop talking about the fact that he's the Messiah. He lets them announce it publicly that he is indeed the son of David, the Messiah, the one that is coming. Just two days before the triumphal entry, just on the outside of Jerusalem itself. And he, they, he says, what is it you want from me? And they say, we want you to heal us. And Jesus heals those men of their blindness. And word spreads around. But not only does it spread around, but it's already been spread around because people in that town are very, very close to the town where Lazarus was raised from the grave. And they know that happened as well. And so they've got this idea that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the son of David. And so on the Sabbath, there's a day's rest. And then on Sunday, Palm Sunday, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And with that in mind, let's read our text. 
As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed. They bought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple court. And he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priest and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never heard from the lips of children and infants, you, you Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany, where he spent the night. Now, we read this, and we become so used to reading Scripture and, and reading the story that we don't, and we don't understand all the background, and we don't understand all of everything with the Jewish culture, and Jesus was a learned man in the Old Testament Scriptures, and the Jewish people knew the Scriptures, and the Sanhedrin knew the Scriptures, and the Pharisees knew the Scriptures, and so when he entered in Jerusalem, the things that just went down that we just read about was a big deal. It was a big deal. It wasn't just some guy riding in on a donkey, Okay? And some people throwing palm fronds out in front of them, and we go, wow, because I remember that when I was a little kid. I did the Palm Sunday thing. I remember getting a palm branch. I think it was fake. But um, I remember getting a palm branch when I was a little kid, and we waved our palms because we were celebrating Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And it didn't, I didn't, that was cool, but, you know, yeah, all right. But what? This is a big deal. Because everything that is happening in this, in this event is Jesus declaring, listen, Jesus declaring fully and in the face. He is so in the face of the people. He's saying, I am your king. I am the Messiah. I am the son of David. I am the son of God. Jesus is in their face about it, and they know it, and they know it. And some praise, and some become indignant, the Bible says, which means they're really ticked off. Now, when um, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I had the great privilege to be part of this really cool student ministry, which mostly focused on high school and, um, and junior high. And uh, 
And so I was a part of this leadership team, and we got the opportunity. We thought we were cutting edge, cutting edge back in the uh, 90s, and we were doing a lot of videos back then um, with where we would take videos, we'd ask people questions, do certain things, then we'd show them at the student ministry. And we found ourselves on the campus of the University of Florida, and we were asking people if we um, could video them and their response to, they would have the opportunity to share with high school students, which college students actually really wanted to do, share with high school students their thoughts and their opinion about who Jesus was. And um, I, I remember the video, it was fun and it went really well, but I do remember this one girl, and her name was Heather. And she was sitting on the grass kind of out in the square by herself. It was a pretty, pretty day, spring day in Florida. And, um, and she was sitting in the grass, and I said, hello, my name is, and I introduced myself. And, and I told her what we were doing. I told her we were from a faith-based organization and that we would like the opportunity to just ask her some questions about what she believes about Jesus. And she said, sure. And so I remember I sat down um, on the grass with her, and the guy with the video camera was there, and he was videoing, and we began to talk. And, and uh, Heather had shared with me the fact that she was in a, religious cl- a religion class and a philosophy class uh, at the University of Florida that, that semester, and she was thrilled to be able to share with us what she had learned and come to realize. And during that interview, I remember her saying this. She said, Jesus was an amazing man. He was a man of peace who was humble, who cared about the downcast and, the, and those that were the outcast. He cared for people. He wanted other people to care for those people. He wanted us to care for the poor. He wanted us to be people who gave to others. And he was a great example of love for all of us in this world. And I said, well, what do you think about Jesus' claim to be God? And she said, oh, see, that's the misconception of Christianity. People have been taught that Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be God. What happened was is the church and his followers have written things and pushed it so much that right now American culture and American Christianity believes that Jesus is God or at least claimed to be God. But if you really read the script, this is what she told me, if you really read the Bible and especially the Gospels, you will see that Jesus never claimed to be God. And I went... I was like, wow. Because I was thinking, what Bible are you reading? But you know, that's, a lot of people read it and go, I don't, see, I don't see the big, Jesus is a great guy. In fact, we're told that. He's a great guy, a moral man. The, maybe the, the greatest man who ever lived because of his morality and his love and his, the example he set for us. But he never claimed to be God. And that is so not true. And I said, I said Heather, I said, you know, have you... Have you read the Gospel of John? And she said, well, yeah, parts of it. I said, have you read, you know, I went through the Gospels. And she goes, well, you know, I had to read part of it from my class. I said, have you read the entirety of any of them? And she goes, no. And I said, well, then how do you know if you read the Gospels that you'll find out that Jesus never claims to be God? And she said this on video, because my professor told me. And I said, Heather, I would encourage you to really read the Gospels. I'm not here. I wasn't there to convince to convert her, to evangelize her. I was just trying to interact with her. And I did, and we had a great talk. And I, I asked her to read, and I asked her to read the Gospel of John, and she said she would, and I said, really read it with an open eye and see if Jesus, what Jesus claims were. You know, and the point is, though, that Jesus does claim to be God. 
We've been told, oh, or it's culturally he's told us that Jesus never did, but he does. In fact, Matthew 21, Jesus screams out, I am God. And I want you to see how he does this. He does this by declaring his kingship. He does this by declaring to the people of Israel who are monotheistic, and he's in a monotheistic environment. He knows the religion. He's Jewish. He's been, he's been a student of the Bible for over 30 years, or the Old Testament scriptures for over 30 years. He knows what's going on. The people of that time, they were all religious. They knew exactly what the scriptures said. And Jesus presents himself as the king, as the Messiah. There is no ifs, ands, or doubts about it. And let me, I, do, I want to look at three ways really quick that Jesus presented himself as the Messiah. I want you to know that there are way more than that, this, the three. In this, pres- in this presentation in Matthew 21. But here it goes. The first way that Jesus presents himself as the Messiah, the king, is that he gets on a donkey. Now wait, that is not the kingly thing to ride. It's not, all right? Uh, it's like, uh, who's the guy, was that Sancho Pot? Who's that guy that, Don Quixote, his sidekick, rode a donkey, right? right? So it was always the servant that rode a donkey, right? But Jesus gets on a donkey, and rides it in. But get this. This whole thing, and this is really important for you to see and understand. He didn't just go, geez, how should I get into town? Maybe somebody's got a donkey I can ride. Go get a donkey. He orchestrates this whole thing. In fact, from the beginning to the end of the triumphal entry, Jesus is in charge. He's planned it out. He is making a statement to the people of Israel. And he says, I want you to go and get a donkey. Go into town. Go into Bethpage and get the donkey. And here's what you're going to do. If anybody says, hey, why are you taking my donkey? Because he says, just go in and they start to untie it. If someone asks why you're taking a donkey, say that the Lord has need of it. That the Lord has need of it. And they'll give it to you. So what happens is that they go in, they get this donkey, and then a crowd gathers. And notice that the crowd, the crowd that is laying the palm branches and throwing their coats out in front of Jesus and singing Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. They are not from the city of Jerusalem. If you look at the text, they're not. They're people that are from Bethany and Bethpage, the the places where Jesus has done miracles and where the two days before, he has let people declare that he is indeed the son of David, the Messiah. And these people gather and Jesus gets on this donkey and they're crying out to him and he goes through the gates of Jerusalem and the people in Jerusalem go, who is this guy? And they go, this is Jesus. This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth. But Jesus, in riding the donkey, is declaring that he is king. And even Matthew tells us that. Matthew refers to Zechariah chapter 9. He says, when the scriptures say this, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a donkey. Jesus knew the scriptures. He knew the prophecy was that the king, the Messiah, was to come riding on a donkey. And he gets on the donkey, and he rides the donkey in. He orchestrates it. He's even got the crowd in a real sense. He's the one that's kind of put that crowd together beforehand. So that when he comes in, and they're proclaiming Hosanna, they are doing so because, in a sense because Jesus has orchestrated the whole thing out because he's making a statement. He is telling the people of Israel, he's telling the religious leaders, both Roman and Jewish, I am the king. I am the Messiah. The second way he does it 
is this. It says that when he gets into Jerusalem, in verse 14, it says this, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The blind and lame came, and he started healing them. And they were calling, they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the king. And he begins to heal them. Now, how is healing people demonstrating that he is the king? Now, if you were to look back at, at Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist finds himself in prison. And he's in prison, and he's wondering what's going on. And, and he sends his disciples to Jesus. And he says, I want you to go and ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we're waiting on? Are you indeed the Son of God? And this is the way that Jesus answers John in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. He, or actually, in says 3, he says, Are you the one to come, John says, or should we expect someone else? Then verse 4, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John the Baptist wanted to know if Jesus was the Messiah, and Jesus' response was, you go back and tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are healed, and the dead are raised. And so when Jesus walks into Jerusalem, no, he doesn't walk in, he rides into Jerusalem on a colt. He says, I am the king, and then he begins to heal people under the title of the, king of da the son of David, the king of Israel, the Messiah. And he begins to heal people, and it says that when the Pharisees and the religious leaders saw this, it says they became very upset, they became indignant. And then the third thing I want you to see how Jesus proclaims his kingship is this. He says, the, the, this, um, the scribes and the Pharisees, they come to Jesus, and they say, they say, do you hear, in verse 16, do you hear what the children are saying, they ask? And what are the children saying? They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Do you hear what they're saying, they ask? And Jesus replied, yes. That's it. No, actually, there's more. He said, yes. Have you never heard? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. That is coming directly, directly from Psalm 8. A messianic psalm. A psalm, a psalm that is speaking about the Redeemer who is to come, the God who is to come. And Jesus says, the psalm is talking about me. I am the Messiah. Jesus is in their face. Now, we read it and we go, isn't that nice? People throw down some palm branches, okay? Children are singing. Jesus rides in on a donkey. Some people get healed. That's a Jesus thing to do. He was a really good man, a really great prophet. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He is so in the people's face that he is saying this. This is what he's saying to the people from this point on. And it goes on for the next full week of his life. He says, I am the Messiah. I am the King. I am the Son of God. I am the Savior of Jerusalem, and I am the Savior of the world. You either crown me as King or kill me. Crown me as King or kill me. That's what he's saying. When he steps into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he is saying to the people, crown me or kill me. And we know what they did just a few short days later. 
Now here's the deal. I hope Heather read the Gospel of John. I never saw her again. I remember her name, and I pray for her sporadically still all these years. But my hope is that Heather and anyone else who really tries to grapple with who Jesus is never says that he was just a good guy, a great prophet, a man of love and peace. That is not what Jesus intended for us to think about him. That was not even his claim. He was very, listen, he was very humble, but he was very bold about who he was. He said, I am the Messiah. I am the King. I am the Son of God. Either crown me or kill me. And for Heather, my prayer is is that she read the Scriptures and she understood who Jesus claimed to be and that she crowned him and made him King of her life. Jesus comes to all of us. Heather, you, me, the people that you work with, the people at school, and he says, crown me or kill me. Deal with me. I didn't leave some, this deal open for you to just kind of guess and feel, do you think you might know who I am? I made a specific claims. The scripture, throughout the scripture, Jesus claims within the Jewish culture to be the son of God, to be the Messiah, to be God himself. And yet, somehow we can just think, oh, he's just a really good guy. He's just a great prophet. He never intended for us to see him that way. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he entered in as a servant king. That was the point of the donkey. I am your servant king. I am coming as a servant to lay down my life for you. And during this time, from the time that he entered into Jerusalem until the time that he returns, we have this great opportunity. Listen, this amazing opportunity to come to a place where we understand that Jesus claimed to be God, that we trust in him and that we place our faith in him and we receive all that he has for us, that we turn from our sins and we turn to obedience to him and we say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need redemption. I know that you are the king and I accept everything that you have for me. And we have until he returns again to respond to that. But when he comes back again, this is how he will come back. The king he is. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. And John says, I saw the heavens standing open, and there before me was a white horse, no donkey anymore whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in the robes, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty God. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, 
King of kings and Lord of lords. The next time we encounter Jesus, he is going to be fierce. He is coming as the king that he is. The king of righteousness, the one who rules, the one who saves those who trust in him. But when he rode into Jerusalem that day, he came as the king. But he came as the king, the one to redeem. And between him riding in to Jerusalem, to this day and any other day that he gives us until he returns, this short brief period of time that we've had, 2,000 years, long time, right? But in eternity, in eternity it's nothing. We, you and I, and everyone else has an opportunity to respond to his kingship and bow before him as Lord. But on the day that he comes on the white horse, it's over. It's over. So here's my deal. And this is Jesus' deal. Trust in him. Believe in him. Throw yourself at the feet of the king and experience his forgiveness and his love and eternal life that he offers and make him your king. Those of us that are followers of Jesus, it's this call to us every day to crown him or to kill him. We make that choice every day. And his desire is that we would crown him and that we would worship him and that we would serve him and that we would give him every area of our life because, you know, all this stuff that we're involved in and care about right now is not going to make a bit of difference when he comes riding in on a white horse. And it's going to happen as sure as I'm standing here. And as Steve Brown, my pastor, used to say at the end of every sermon, you think about that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the declaration of Jesus. That he was just not some good guy, some prophet, some man of love. But he came into this world with a purpose. He demonstrated that purpose. He declared that purpose. And that was to be the Savior of the world, the Messiah. The one who was the King of the Jews and the King of all the earth. For he is indeed the Lord of the earth. And the creator of all things you tell us in your word. We thank you that we have an opportunity this morning to come to a place to worship him. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit that teaches us through it. And God, I would pray that this day, in the days ahead, that those of us who know you and follow you would crown you every day as our king. And we would stay focused on the fact that you love us much and have much for us. And if there's anybody in this room this morning who has not yet come to a place where they've trusted in Jesus as their Savior and God and King, I pray that they would do it now, that they would do it today, because today, the Scriptures tell us, is a day to know Him, to love Him. It's a day of salvation. And I pray this for them, and I pray this for all of us. In the name of my King, the King of kings, the Savior of mankind, the ruler of this earth and of all the universe, even Jesus. Amen.